I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. This week on the show, we are joined by Dr. Grant Woods of Growing Deer TV to discuss exactly how he'd handle some of the most challenging deer hunting and management scenarios in the whitetail woods. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today on the show, we're kicking off a new month-long series. Now, I hope you guys enjoyed shooting month back in July. I certainly did. It was what I needed. This year is all about shooting for me. I'm feeling good about it. These folks helped me out. And uh, I am now, and hopefully you are now, ready to fully turn our attention to hunting. Because guess what? Hunting season is just about here. I mean, geez, guys. I mean, for some of you, it's just a matter of weeks, probably, right? There's some August openers, some early September openers. Uh, I think my first hunt of the year is going to be somewhere around mid-September. But man, it's coming up fast, and uh, I am excited. So from here on out, through the rest of the fall, we are going to be 100% focused on chatting with the best deer hunters in the world to get you and me and all the rest of us ready for our best season yet. It's going to be some really good stuff. And to get things going, my thought was to do a whole month of our What Would You Do episodes. We've done these over the past couple years, uh, so hopefully you're familiar. But if you're not, the basic gist of it is this. I get some great hunter on the line, and then I present them with a bunch of different, very specific, unique hunting scenarios. I'll tell basically a story. It's this day. It's this place. It's this kind of thing. And here's what's going on. And then I ask them to explain what they would do in that circumstance, why they would do it, how they would pull it off. And 
you know, what I found is this has ended up being one of the best ways to get new ideas and a new perspective from these really good deer hunters. And it's a lot of fun too. So I'm pretty stoked to do a full month of them. We've got a really, really good lineup scheduled for you here. And we're kicking it off today with a true legend. Dr. Grant Woods is one of the best in the world. He's a longtime wildlife biologist. He's a thought leader in the deer management world. And he's the founder and host of Growing Deer TV, which is, you know, for, geez, well over a decade now. It's been one of the best and most popular online hunting series that there is. He hunts and manages a great big property down in southern Missouri, but he's also traveled and consulted and hunted all over the country. So he's just got this wide kind of wealth of experience and expertise. And I think he's the perfect person to help us kind of shift our preparations into the season into overdrive. So that's the plan for today. That's the podcast we've got. I just finished my podcast with Grant, just finished chatting with him. And I can tell you, it lives up to the billing. It really was a good one. So I'm excited for you guys to hear the rest of this, but I do want to give you a quick update, some housekeeping here. If you're listening to this on the day that this episode drops, which is Thursday, August 4th, 2022, I got to give you a heads up that today is the last day of our season opener sale for Meat Eater and our family brands, right? As you guys know, Wired Hunt is part of the Meat Eater Network, and this is basically our, our biggest sale of the entire year. Today's the last day. Over at First Light, they got 20 to 40% off almost the entire inventory. It's 20% off a bunch of our favorites from FHF and uh, Phelps Game Calls, up to 50% off. And then there's a bunch of logo wear and some knife bundles and different things on sale at our Meat Eater store where we stock all sorts of different hunting gear now too. So it's a lot to keep straight, I realize. So to make things more simple, we actually just started a new kind of curated gear page for me. And I know I mentioned last month I was going to do some Wired to Hunt monthly gear picks and I told you to go over to the Wired to Hunt website. Well, we've kind of shifted things a little bit. We've actually got a new page now where I'm going to be putting some of my favorite items for each phase of the year. And you can see those recommendations right now. And so right now, a bunch of my selections for like the late summer scouting period and the early season hunting period, a bunch of that stuff's on sale today, August 4th. So what you got to do, if you're interested in checking out a few of these things, you go to store.themeateater.com. So that's store.themeateater.com slash mark. And there you're going to see Stuff like my favorite, uh, like the gear I'm wearing for early season hunting from First Light. You'll see the hoodie I wear. You'll see the pants I wear. You'll see the face covering I wear. I also included this new cooler I've been using all summer. My new favorite cooler I recommended on there. And my top recommendation for super cheap, budget-friendly binoculars. If you want to get a pretty decent set of glass for not a ton of money, there's a recommendation in there for you too. So go to store.themeateater.com slash mark. To see my recommendations, if you're listening on the 4th, you can still get those sale prices. If not, still check out those recommendations if you're in the market for anything like that. Uh, That's my little spiel and my update. And with that out of the way, it's time to get to our first episode of What Would You Do Month with the one and only Dr. Grant Woods. Let's go. All right, back with me on the show is Mr. Grant Woods. Grant, thank you so much for being here. Hey Mark, thanks for having me. It's been it's been too long. I think it's been a couple years since we've had you on the show, and uh, every time we chat, though, it's it's one of the best ever. So I'm glad we're getting back together. 
Yeah, you know, I, I enjoy our visits also. And this is kind of a unique one. I mean, we've talked in the past on Wired to Hunt about general land management things. I know we did a podcast with the Drury's a few years ago where we dove mm-hmm. into stuff with EHD and diseases and drought and stuff. But today, I kind of want to run you through the gauntlet. If you're if you're willing to go there with me, Grant, I want to I want to pitch a whole bunch of hypothetical hunting scenarios at you and and then just see how you would handle them, what you would do, what your thought process would be, what kinds of things you would be thinking about, um, anything along those lines. We're going to kind of go from land management stuff all the way through early season, mid season, late season, and, and kind of cover a whole swath of different possible circumstances a hunter might find themselves. And so are you, are you game to go on that journey? Yeah, yeah, that sounds fun. This is this is, sounds awesome, man. Yeah, it, it actually is pretty fun. I, I enjoy doing these. So I, I say rather than beating around the bush, we should just jump right into my first one, which is a slightly, it's probably going to be a concerning, depressing thing to think about. So forgive me to start here, Grant, but I, <laughs> I want you to imagine this scenario. Okay. Imagine for some reason you had to sell the proving grounds, like right now. In the middle of the summer, last minute, or or you wanted to do it for, for whatever reason, but you, the proving grounds, your home turf, your home farm you've worked so hard on over the years is now gone. And it's let's say August fifteenth, let's let's hypothetically imagine, and now you have just picked up a new property to hunt this year, but it's just a lease. It's a smaller property, and it's just, you know, for this year, for the interim, we're just gonna pick up a lease to get me through this year. We'll see what happens after that. And on this lease, you are allowed to do some minor habitat improvements, but there's a farmer on the property as well. And he just doesn't want you to mess with his fields. He doesn't want you to mess with his crop fields. Everything else is fair game though. You can mess with the timber a little bit. You can mess with any kind of openings, but here's the rub. You only have two available weekends in the summer to make whatever changes you want. So you have two weekends of time to do something fast to get ready for this first hunting season on this new lease. So my question for you, Grant, is this. With this very short amount of time, very late in the year, on a new place, what would you do with those two weekends? What's the best bang for your buck and, and most efficient impact you can make given those constraints? What would you do? What's your thought process? And that is a scary scenario there. <laughs> uh, and I think my first thing, because I'm going to be thinking about this like a lot of us you know, while I'm working or do it, driving down the road, even though I have two weekends to have boots on the ground. So I'm going to, I'm going to whip out my online map, which for me is hunt stand. And I'm going to do just the opposite. While a lot of people do, I'm going to look at my property, but just as important, it's a smaller lease. I'm going to look at the neighborhood. I want to try to find the best sources that you can detect from a satellite image of food cover and water, because those resources are going to impact how deer travel through or use my lease. I'll, of course, look at food. We mentioned there's a farmer probably doing a single rotation. So he's got corn or beans, but he's not double cropping, most likely, since that's rare. So I'm going to try to learn what he's planting. And I can probably do that to some extent by the, you know, if I get a last year's satellite view uh, and it's corn, I can assume he went to beans this year with pretty good accuracy. But I want to see how much food is in the neighborhood. Maybe see if there's been any timber work around me. There's some bedding area, some clear cuts or something. Because when I start any new project, I want to identify the best sources of food cover and water 
find one that's the most limited and and put that where I'm hunting. Yep. That that makes sense. So can you can you maybe take it one step further then? So let's let's yeah, imagine so what, well sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I'll use my imagination a little bit. And I'm gonna say it's pretty homogenous habitat. I don't I don't see fresh clear cuts on the neighbors or a you know a bedding area and all the farmers seem to have the same practices in a neighborhood. And all the farmers are harvesting their crops. Let's just say, I don't know where we are north south, but let's say by October first. There's still some hunting season out there when when the crops are standing, but they get gone pretty quick. And and combines are super efficient anymore. And this particular farmer is not using any cover crops. And so he said he didn't want me messing with his fields, but I'm going to try to beg him to just let me broadcast. I'm not doing anything. I'm not adding any chemicals. I'm just going to broadcast some good food plot blends in the back corner where likely the deer may have done some damage to his ag crops anyway. And, and see if I can't get, you know, an eighth acre, quarter acre back corner fields, just make some little hideo food plots. Those are easy. I don't have to worry about clearing trees or anything. I'm not disturbing the soil because it's going to be bare after harvest. So I'm just broadcasting seed right before rain. Hope it rains on one or two weekends I have or right after that. And then I'm going to get boots on the ground. And that first day, man, I'm almost jogging through the woods. I'm just, I've got limited time. I am on every trail and every side ridge and elevator ridge. And I'm not going to worry as much about the bottoms because I know the wind's going to swirl down there. And I prefer to bow hunt early season. So it's going to be a little tougher on the bottoms. I'm going to put my eggs in the basket on the ridge tops where the wind and thermals are going to be more predictable and more consistent. And what I'm really looking for is white oaks because deer like white oaks over red oaks during the early season. Potentially, an old farm place, maybe got a pear tree or something by it that would be an attraction during the early season. And just as importantly, I'm looking for any dry ponds or openings where some sun is reaching the soil. And I can just take a rake or a backpack blower and blow the leaves and duff out away. And again, broadcast some seed. And in that timber spot, I might throw out a bag of 10, 10, 10 or something. And again, make that attractive food source because when all the farmers harvest, deer are coming to my little food plots. Mm-hmm. I love it. Now, both in your little timber spot and in the corners of these fields where you're going to broadcast after takeout, what specifically would you try broadcasting in that kind of situation? Okay, so just being really candid, I just designed the new blends for me, but I shared that recipe with green cover so anyone could get it. But I have I maintained about 10 or 15 10 on a year little hideo food plots. And I've just learned through the years that, you know, there's no new magic bean, but oats, and folks, there's, you know, everyone's, well, I got big buck oats or yellow oats or whatever. There's, there's you know, co-tolerant oats and non-co-tolerant oats. But anyway, I'm going to have oats and radishes and buckwheats and a few little soybeans in there to just get there early. Those are really great early season attractants, north to south. And then I'm going to have some blanched clover and a few things like that in there that's going to come on, a, you know, a month into it or so until it gets really cold. And then really light up next spring for the turkeys. Just gonna those things are just gonna blow out of ground the following spring. Mm. And then I'm gonna have a little cereal rye because once again, if I'm far enough north and it gets cold and my oats might frost off or just really become dormant and get eight to the ground, cereal rye grows down to 28 degrees. So if it's 28 degrees and the magic about cereal rye is let's say it's been zero for five weeks, then it warms up to 28 degrees. It's going to grow a little bit. And of course, that fresh photosynthesis, fresh vegetation 
is going to attract deer during the late season. So I'm going to have a blend. I always prefer blends over single species. If you like that blend, it's called Heidi Ho. I call little food plots Heidi Ho. And that's exactly what I'm planting this year. Awesome. Now, you know, just as an aside to everyone listening, you know, you and I, Grant, we did a, we did a podcast, like I mentioned a few years ago, all about your Buffalo method, as you were calling it, um, where you talked about the importance of diversity and blends and everything like that. Highly recommend anyone who has a little bit more time than two weekends, but who really wants to rethink the way they do food plots in a more uh, sustainable and soil friendly way. Highly recommend looking up the Buffalo method. Uh, are you basically following the same program these days or has that changed dramatically you know, in the last couple of years? Yeah, it changed a little bit as we continue learning and, you know, just again, there's no new magic beam, but just trying different combination of species. We kind of refined our techniques. My soil is improving. You've been here, Mark, really rocky, tough place. Yep. Uh, my soil is making more gains now and it's easier to make gains early on, right? Like it's, you know, it's really easy to jump when you're starting at the bottom, but it's really tough to get that last 10%. But just by stuff we've learned and timing and techniques, we're making faster gains now. And so much of a difference, we actually now call it the release process. I, I kind of consider it releasing creation's potential because I've just learned through the years that there's soil, even degraded soil, if you treat it right, just within a year or two, it has so much potential. I haven't I haven't paid for any fertilizer except a little hydro food plot or something in eight years now. Wow. I haven't bought any herbicide in a couple of years. I, I'm just, I spend, and I like tractor time, but you know, I, with my technique, I spend a lot less time on a tractor, which gives me more time to go be in a tree stand or hang a tree stand or something. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, Grant, since that conversation where we dove into that, I have spent the last two years, you know, trying something, you know, a poor man's version of what you're doing and, and have seen, you know, pretty darn good success and have really enjoyed diving into this different way of going about things. So, so thank you again for, for sharing what you've been doing and, and how you're doing it. Cause it's been helpful to me and, and I'm sure many, many other people too. So it's cool to see that Thanks, come, come together. Okay. Yeah. So here's, here's another scenario. We'll, uh, we'll say, well, let me take, I guess we'll stick with the original property that we're talking about here, but uh-huh. let's, let's give it a little bit more specificity and say it's 40 acres. That's it. Okay. And it is a mixture of that timber and some of that ag, like we talked about. It's surrounded mm-hmm. by similar. Here's the problem. Here's the thing you discover um, for the next year, let's say. You discover that you have a neighborhood around you of folks who are hovering on your property lines um, in a big, big way, like to a point where it's dramatically impacting you. You're seeing them all the time. They're bumping deer. Uh, it's become something that's been, become a real challenge in, in one way or another for you. So now you're entering year two. How, if at all, would you adjust your property, your plan? In Let me take, I guess, let me add one more thing, which is that you now own this 40 acres. So you can now do whatever okay. you want. You bought this 40. Yeah. Now you can yeah. change things up and you're trying to deal with these line hugging neighbors that have been a challenge. What do you do now? Yeah. In those situations, I like to make my cover right on the outside edge for a couple of reasons. I like it really thick and gnarly so people can't see in. And a lot of them don't even want to walk through it. So I'm going to, I'm going to purposely design my bedding areas or my daytime cover areas on the edges of my property. Uh, and, and deer will bed on edge. No problem. 
And then as part of that design, I have to think, how can I locate the property? Is my only access through the south or can I, you know, pay the neighboring farmer a few bucks and come in from the east or, you know, how can I get there? And I'm going to really intentionally design my little hideo food plots so I can approach hunt and exit with multiple wind directions without alerting deer. And that may mean I'm just taking a backpack blower and making a walking trail around the whole outside of property because I only have one access point. And depending on the wind that day, I'm just going on the downwind side. I may go three quarters of the way around just so I don't booger up the deer walking through the middle and then cut in 150 yards to my, my scrape line or my food plot or whatever. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm going to have to hunt really strategically because there's always advantages. You can always make lemonade somehow. If the neighbors are kind of line huggers and probably careless hunters and putting a lot of pressure on deer, and I can create my property and hunt it in a way that becomes a de facto sanctuary, less pressure than the other properties. I'm still hunting it, but I'm thinking through how I approach hunt next that every time I go there, deer are going to naturally want to be on my property, even though it's 40 acres. And I'll, they give a real quick, perfect example that years ago, at uh, Itchway, which is a 28,000 research, 28,000 acre research property in Southwest Georgia that the University of Georgia heads up a lot of research. And I was, of course, a grad student, got to work down there a little bit. Another colleague of mine built four 80 acre enclosures that were coyote proof. Coyote's a big problem down there, about a foot and a half deep wire in the ground and four feet tall, and had a bunch of GPS collar does in the area. And the bottom line is when it comes fawning season, the majority of does out of all that land in, the, in those areas went into the 80 acre coyote proof enclosure to fawn because they knew it was safer. Hmm. Interesting. And so you may not be able to reduce 100% of pressure or certainly you probably can't remove 100% of predators. But if you can reduce the pressure or predators lowered in your neighbor, then, you know, it's kind of like you and I being thrown in the middle of Ukraine right now or something. Man, we're going for cover. We're going... We're never yeah. totally safe, but we want to be as safe as we can. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. One kind of follow up when it comes to you know paying extra attention to your access. You know, there's more and more people these days. It seems like um, you know, kind of leaning towards wheeled access as a way to reduce mm-hmm. the pressure. So whether with a bike or an e bike or a UTV or a buddy driving him with a truck. Uh, you know, where where have you fallen these days more recently on that side of things? Do you do, you do that a lot still? Is that a part of your strategy? I mean, I do. I do. My land's real steep, so I'm kind of chicken riding an e-bike up and down my hills. I'm afraid I'll take a face plant somewhere. But uh, <laughs> buggies, four-wheelers, your wife taking you out in a pickup if you're that lucky, whatever it is. Anywhere. I, I'm pretty blessed with a you know pretty good-sized property. But deer here, here vehicles, my place, neighbor's place, local highway, whatever, every single day. And and so I have no problem getting dropped off three feet from my stand on a vehicle at 10 to 3 in the afternoon. And I would much rather do that than walk a quarter mile in there and the wind's blowing across me that whole quarter mile and making a big old scent stream out there. So for years, we've been big on getting dropped off or, you know, getting in there without walking. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and the last thing I want to say about that, you know, if you have a property that's pretty secluded, and you haven't been there all year, and then opening day hunt season, you're buzzing every road with your UTV, you're probably, you know, you're probably burning up the deer a little bit. But if you're, you know, you're like me, you're checking trail cameras, you're working food plots, you're moving stands, they're just used to it. It it's not something that alerts deer. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's all about, you know, maintaining consistency. And once they come to realize that wheels and vehicles are a consistent thing, it, it no longer is out of the norm and they can they can live with that, right? Yeah, they, they, you may see one that bounces off in the woods 50 yards and watches you go by or something, but not like they smelled a big old ugly guy walking out through there and say, oh man, last time I smelled dad, it thundered real loud and mama <laughs> fell over dead, so I don't want to smell that again. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's let's uh, let's step away from that hypothetical and now kind of go back to your current situation. You're on the Proving Grounds, and I, I don't know exactly when you plant your your fall release blend, but let's say you, whenever that period comes and goes, you, you plant your fall, you broadcast your fall blend into your spots in that late summer time period. Yeah. And you were supposed to get great rain, but let's say like the next day, the forecast completely changes and now there's nothing. And you mentioned to me earlier today that you're in the midst of a a real gnarly drought. So let's say this drought continues and you go a week without that rain and then two weeks without that rain and maybe three weeks without that rain. Now opening day is, is either here or almost here and all that stuff staring you in your face. And you have this, this dried up, almost non-existent food plot. What do you do in that situation to salvage your situation, if at all? Yeah, great point. So on a backup, we're going to plan about 45 to 60 days before the average first frost date in the fall here at this latitude. That happens to be about October 15th. So, you know, August 15th on when the weather person says we got a really good chance to rain, we're going to spread seed. And we've had, you know, 80% chance for it and it doesn't rain. And I will assure you in a little small hunting plot or hidey hole plot, squirrels cardinals turkeys whatever can wipe out a bunch of seed quick and i don't know how they eat that much you know yeah. you spread 30 pounds out there and you see a few squirrels run down ah, you know that's no big deal and, you know next time you go out there you got a boon and crockett squirrel running around and no seed germinating uh so that's a real pain and i'm always going to have four or five options i like to monitor scrapes year round you know those bigger communal scrapes that they're probably not pawing the ground but they're using the overhanging limb I love bottlenecks. I mean, I'm a, I am I like a good bottleneck as much as I do anything. So I'm going to create bottlenecks, pinch points by whatever method I need to on that property is that's making a gap in a, you know, an interior fence or have a pond and it's really dry or, you know, whatever it is, I'm looking for those bottlenecks because deer, unless they're, unless they've been disturbed there, they're going to use bottlenecks every day. You want to hunt them knowing that disturbance is a real no-no. And one thing, a good friend of mine from Wisconsin, I've always kind of tinkered with it, but he's, I think he's perfected it. He, Vic takes a stick or a piece of grapevine or something like that. Instead of making a full moss scrape, which I do every year and, you know, drive my T post in the ground and wire a tree or a branch to it or whatever. And he just takes some paracord and hangs these sticks down out of the tree on a trail or a food pot or whatever, about four feet off the ground. And I don't know what it is if the deer, I hate to use the word playing. That's Walt Disney is, but right. uh, they bump those sticks around for 20 minutes at a time. It, it is shocking to me. And I'm not taking any credit. My buddy Vic does this and just had tremendous results. They, sp- they spend time there and they turn a different angle. So you get a good shot angle to the, the tree you made the mock scrape out of is not blocking your view if they come in the wrong way. So I'm going to have some of those this year in various places. 
So it's it's just a piece of grapevine or branch that's hanging down off of some paracord, basically as a licking branch, but a, a vertical kind of hanging. Yeah, a vertical licking branch, and it, but it, it's got a lot of movement to it. You know, he may tie it five, six feet above, or you know, where the limb is in that situation. And his trail camera videos, my goodness, those deer spend a lot of time there. Interesting. Now, is there any? planting option like if you have that drought the last three more weeks is there something that you would try to still go back out and broadcast you know into late september or something that can get you a little extra anything or is it out of the question at that point no i'm going to plant that same blend again seal rise really drought resistant and cold hardy but i'm going to wait for soil moisture i'm i'm too old to waste money on seed anymore if there's no moisture and no rain in the forecast or the forecast doesn't pan out as you had anticipated. I'm going to get some more seed. And at that time, you know, I've missed my ideal planting window. Now I'm 10 days before the first expected frost. Now, you know, these are average frost days. So ours is October 15th. I've seen it not frost here till mid-November. So I'm going to gamble. Okay, we're going to get some more warm temperatures. Remember, it's not just warm temperature, though. You need a certain amount of sunshine for those plants to photosynthesize. And those days are getting shorter and shorter. But I'm going to throw it out. Hopefully it turns green. When food is, you know this, when food is short for deer in the deer world, uh, gosh, I think they'd probably lick a green pickup. So I want to turn it <laughs> green if I can. Yeah. And, and, and then also I love the turkey hunt. So I, love, I want that green spot out there as a strut zone in the spring also. Yeah. Is there a, like a cutoff date? Is there any date where you're like, okay, it's, it's finally too late to try? I mean, if you're getting frost for, for here, I kind of figure like November 1st is, you know, I have failed. I, there's just no way to salvage this. And at that time, I'm, I'm not having much weed pressure or anything. I'm going to wait and frost seed some clover as soon as I can in the spring. Okay. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop. 
but it's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Let's shift away from property work now and and talk a little bit more on the hunting side, let's say we're moving into opening day of hunting season mm-hmm. and to, to make this, you know, applicable to as many people as possible. Let's say that the property you're hunting is on the smaller side. It's, it's, it's not huge. It's kind of, I don't know, let's say a hundred some acres, give or take. Yeah. Um, but yeah. there's a lot of people around it. There's a lot of folks that hunt in the neighborhood Let's, uh, you know, we'll put you up in northern Missouri, maybe more towards the, you know, St. Louis area. So there's a lot of folks that get after it. Okay. And opening day is in the forecast. You're looking at it and you're thinking, man, I've had this game plan in place. There's a big shooter buck that's been, you know, he's been showing up on camera. I've got, you know, everything lined up for this. I know that first day is is usually one of your best chances because there haven't been people hunting. But here's the big issue the weather forecast for opening day and the next few days after that is very hot a subpar wind muggy just just kind of the worst case scenario as far as what you dream of for great deer hunting conditions so the question is this grant do you go and hunt opening day despite the lousy weather because you know it's your only hunt pre-hunting pressure before other guys mess things up or do you say no matter what, I'm not hunting there until the perfect weather or the perfect wind. And you wait till four or five days into the year, risking the possibility that your neighbors might hunt all four of those days and booger everything up regardless. What would you do in that situation? Yeah, I, I am with the, 
high, I do not like high humidity days. Your scent is just whiffing everywhere. Uh, so I'm not, I'm certainly not hunting my prime areas. I usually have what I call an observation stand. You know, some people call it the brother-in-law stand. You don't think you're going to really see a shooter buck or maybe no deer there. Just because it's opening day and I've planned to be off work that day, I'm going hunting. But it's hot and muggy and the wind is still. I am not going to a, a good area. I'm just going on the edge and probably got my binoculars at the ready more than I do my bow. I'm just, you know, looking three, 400 yards out. I've had that kind of visibility and I'm not going to a good area. Even now, I mean, uh, at, here at my place, if, if the conditions aren't right, I'll go sit on a, you know, a, a bluff on a ridge top and look over areas or something. I'm not going into a primary. Those those primaries that you've worked, to, you know, maybe hang a stand and cut some lanes or plant a little food plot or whatever. Uh, Dr. Carl Miller used to be my roommate for a little bit at University of Georgia. Brilliant guy has done some great research, and we know that deer have memory. And and I would rather give up five days. And my other thinking here is, if it's bad conditions, although neighbors are probably getting busted and maybe alerting deer, they got a chance of bumping them into my land. They're probably not killing a lot of deer because the conditions are so bad. Certainly mature deer. So I'm going to let them hunt and I'm just going to let them maybe push a couple bump a few bucks in there to my area and uh, let them realize that's a safer part of their home range. And I'm just going to do an observation. hunt. Yep. Okay. I follow you. Here's another one. Let's, and I think this is actually something that you'll be able to relate to. I think you had a somewhat similar experience um, with a buck you called swoops, but let's say you've got Mm. one buck on your property that you have been after for several years and he's been on your mind. He's been the one. And for whatever reason, he's always been one step ahead of you. You know, he's, he either only shows up in daylight when you're, you know, on vacation. And then when you go hunt, he's showing up there, you know, or he's in the stand you were hunting yesterday and then you go back there and then he's where you were the day before, whatever it was, he's always where you're not. And you're always close, but not close enough. You've hunted him, let's say, you know, we'll say not six or seven years like you did, but let's say you hunted him two previous years. Now you're into year three. Your third year hunting this buck now you have two really good years of history with. What kinds of things would you focus on or change when it comes to your hunting strategy or setups or scouting and trail cameras, anything like that to dial it in now on year three when you're saying, gosh, he's evaded me for so long. I I have to make it work now. And you decide to switch it up. What would those things be? Yeah, that is a great scenario that uh, I think a lot of us face. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I keep trail camera pictures of bucks that are, let's just say, you know, three years old or older year after year after year, you know, I'll give them a name or put them in a file or whatever. And uh, the first thing I'm going to do is really study. I'm going to get a pencil, pencil and paper out. And I'm going to look at the dates and exactly where that camera was or where he was. I'm going to, I'm going to plot it out. I mean, because I have found that oftentimes mature bucks, even more so as they reach older age classes, not only have a generic pattern, they may show up on the exact same day at a food plot or location, a scrape that they did the year before. It is something. It is really uncanny to me at how accurate that is. So I'm really going to look at the past and say, okay, early season, he's using the south part of where I get to hunt, and specifically this White Oak Ridge or what, whatever it is. And then about two or three weeks into it, I don't get any more pictures of him down there, but I start picking up some pictures the next ridge over. I'm going to really point that data down. 
And then I'm going to ask myself to be honest with myself and say, why have I not tagged that buck? Where, where is he busting me? What, what am I doing wrong? It's not the deer's fault, right? He's just doing his thing. It's our fault. And, and I'm going to really review my hunting techniques, my choices, my timing, because I need to change. I do not want to do the same thing I've been doing. And, and I think those two things paired have helped me tag some bucks that have avoided me for multiple years, um, which is frustrating and fun at the same time, right? When that, yeah. when that does come together, you know, a year or two or three later, whatever, gosh, what a reward that is. So, so, so true well, on the trail camera front. This is something I'm, I'm always curious about different people's takes on this. When you're trying to zero in on one specific buck, uh, let's say maybe maybe you did this with swoops, maybe not. But when you're trying to zero in on a deer, let's say you have just the one that you really want, and you're trying to close the net around him in in one form or another, what do you do with your cameras differently, if at all, to help you fine tune that pattern? Do you start moving in the men tighter and tighter into one area, or do you put more out in his range, or? Do you never change your trail camera strategy and always have a basic blanket approach year after year because you know you still want cameras in the north corner because maybe a new buck will show up? What's your take on that? Yeah, great great thought again, Mark. Uh, I do change my trail camera placement pretty frequently based on MRI, most recent information. And and in that scenario, I'm, I'm going to work really hard not to crowd or alert the deer. Alerted deer are so much tougher to hunt. And, and so if I, I, you know, he's back on the South 40 again, he's back in there. I'm going to just place cameras along roads or edges of plots or somewhere I can get midday that there's almost zero chance. I'm going to bump him. Uh, it's hot enough. The scent is rising. The air is rising. I'm probably going in with scent control, even though I'm not hunting, but I'm not penetrating, you know, 150 yards in the timber to get to that white oak tree or something. I'm just not going to take a chance of busting that deer out of there. So. I may move some more cameras in the area, but they're going to be on the outskirts of the area. I just want to see if I can find him and if he's coming or going. And I have done this, and I'm always surprised that, okay, here's a spot on this road I can see 30 yards. There's really no redeeming reason here, but I'm I'm just going to put a camera here because I'm not getting anything on this camera on the other side of the farm. And you whip it out there, you know, call it gut instinct, call it whatever it is, but you don't really see any reason to put it there. And all of a sudden, that buck's walking seven yards from the camera. <laughs> so I'm going to put my cameras in his area, but I'm not going very far off the road or where I can access real easily. Yeah. What about camera density? Um, you know, how many cameras you'll put in a small area? I, I spent some time last fall with Tom Indrabo, and mm-hmm. I was shocked by the way he uses cameras. He will, in, a, in an acre area, like an acre food plot or a little acre bedding knob, He'll have three, four, five different cameras in this little area pointed in every different direction or two sides of the trail or both sides of the water hole and two different trails that come into it. I mean, he very, very thoroughly covered certain zones. Do you ever do anything like that? Or or if not, what is the density you get so that you can, you know, get the full picture or at least enough of the picture? I do that when I do suspect there's a certain buck in the area that I or one of my guests or someone would like to tag. And Tom is a very skilled outdoorsman. So I'm certainly not going against Tom, but I do the same thing, but not just willy nilly. I mean, I know there's something going on in there. I can't quite figure it out. 
And again, I'm, I'm not going to wade through the bedding area to do this, but as close as I can get and feel I'm not disturbing the deer, I'll, I'll stack several in the area. I kind of look at it like trapping. If a if I've got a good crossroads and there's a lot of coyotes in there, I'm not going to put one trap there. I'm going to put three or four because, of course, coyotes often travel as smaller units. And if I think I got a buck, man, he's crossing this ridge somewhere, you know, going to this water source somewhere. Heck, yeah, I'm going to put three or four cameras in there because I'm just guessing otherwise. Yeah. So one more trail camera situation then for him. And this will kind of we'll zoom out to a slightly more generic situation. So let's let's not say we're trying to kill one specific buck, but instead this is just, hey, you know, let's go back to that 40 acre property we mentioned earlier. You've got this 40 acre property and now I, I want to just better understand how you what your what your typical starting point trail camera setup would be. So let's imagine well, I'll give you a little more detail on this property now. Let's imagine it's 40 acres. And you have two food plots. Those are your two food sources. The rest of the 40 acres is timber, brush, that kind of stuff, of which two really good bedding thickets are within. So you've got two food plots. You've got two really great bedding thickets. And let's say one of those thickets is in the valley. One of those thickets is up on a ridge. Okay, there's your, there's your property. You have four cameras at your disposal. Where and how would you place your four cameras across this type of property? If it's early season and I don't believe deer have dispersed and chasing acorns all up down the ridges, I'm going to focus on those food plots, assuming I've got a decent food plot crop in there, plan to establish one. And even if the deer are getting there after dark, I'm going to pay attention to, you know, what direction they came from, where they exited. And once I get a hint of a pattern, then I'll chase them a little bit, you know, back up 100 yards, 200 yards, whatever. I myself stay out of bedding areas until the pre-rut, and then I try to stay out of it if I can. I just, that's a real sensitive area. Uh, uh, deer, having a lot of GPS collars on deer throughout my career, if you bump a deer from a bedding area, they tend to get a little bit more upset than if you bump one off a food source or something like that. And they expect to be bumped around food sources, right? That's how they're created. They got this big old room. And I often try to share with people, and I usually get some odd faces, but a deer's number one predator defense mechanism is not its nose or its eyes or its ear. It's its belly. Hmm. And the reason it's its belly, you know, you've watched deer, they, especially in a heavy pressure, they come out where there's some sun hitting the ground or getting native, native forbs or food plot or whatever. And they eat real quick, and then they go back in the bushes, and they regurgitate it and chew it up more and swallow it again. If they had to eat like we do, they'd be standing out in that food plot for an hour and be much more exposed to predation. Yeah. So uh, food is key to deer. They're going to need it every day. Deer are going to consume approximately lots of variables in here. So don't send me hate mail, but <laughs> about 5% of their body weight a day, dry weight. That's all the moisture. So you got lush clover. It could be 70% water. So now you're talking about eating a whole bunch of pounds every day to get that dry weight. So they're going to eat a lot. And that's going to be a daily routine. And if they're not coming in daylight, I still gain critical information of where they're coming from and where they're going. And by the way, if I could add, trail cameras are awesome. I'm a kind of a trail camera freak. I have too many. Um, don't tell my wife I admitted that. But I won't. <laughs> uh, if you go to the skin and shit, your buddy kills a deer. And no one likes to do this, right? Because you get your hands a little smelly, whatever. But after you're done eviscerating it, go up the esophagus. 
if it's a buck, pull it out. You know, you don't want to run the cape or whatever. But because what you find is, the, you know, that, that your buddy harvested this deer at 845 in the morning. And you go up to your soft because you're going to get a pretty good idea of where he was the previous hour because food moves a little bit slow. And you're going to say, oh, man, he's been running my neighbor's cornfield. There's some corn up there about six inches down from his throat or, you know, whatever it is. That's your timetable. We call that scouting from the skinning shed. <laughs> and, and it's a little bit more accurate than looking in the room. And because once food gets in the room and it can sit there quite a while, it does sit there quite a while. Of course, it'll start breaking down from the acids in there. But. Boy, when you get the softest, you can just backtrack a couple hundred yards and know exactly where that deer was. That's a great idea. I like that a lot. So let's move the time forward on that scenario. You mentioned you'd be focusing on the food plots in the early season with this, you know, 40 acres, two plots, two thickets, one ridge. Once we get a little later in the year, when, when would your trail camera placement shift, if at all, as you get later into the year? Yeah, if I notice the browse pressure decreasing, I'm, I'm always going to have a utilization cage in all my plots for multiple reasons. But one is during hunting season, you know, it's foot tall inside your basket and eight inches tall outside. And then all of a sudden, there's only two inches difference. I know that the deer have left to go chase acorns or local ag field or something, and I need to be hunting somewhere else. And so, you know, or white oaks hit the ground, guys at my house or you know, neighbor's house, whatever, there's a big white oak out in the yard and it's just raining. And that's five minutes from where I hunt. I need to be chasing those white oaks. And, and I'm going to go to the ridge top. Now, deer are going to eat on the side ridges and the bottoms. But my chances of my wind staying in a constant direction is way higher on the ridge top. So I'm going to just get on that ridge top. Bucks love to cruise that ridge top because it's easier, less calories to cruise during the pre rut and rut and find me some great big old white oaks that are cruising up there. Now, this this is anything but scientific, but through the years, I've seemed to notice, you know, it seems like on almost every property, unless it was clear cut 20 years ago or something, that there'd be that great big old tree that's twice as big as the other trees. Maybe there's a fence halfway going through it or whatever. They couldn't cut it. And it's almost like deer use those giant trees as road markers. Oh, we turn right up here at the big tree. <laughs> yeah. And I know it sounds so you know, kind of quacky, but so many times when I, you know, buddy, Hey man, I know you're passing through. Why don't you come home with me one afternoon? And he doesn't have me a stance. Hey, we'll go. You got this ridge, go down this ridge and hunt. And I don't have any clue what I'm doing. My default in that scenario is find the biggest tree on the ridge. Cause I believe deer use that as a road mark. Hmm. I, I, I feel like anecdotally, I've seen the same kind of thing too. And it, and it fits in dovetails perfectly to my next question and maybe your answer will apply to this too but uh, another situation similar to what you described that a lot of people dread is the banner acorn year like the year let's say they're in like a big timber area like you hunt you know down there in southern missouri where there's acorns everywhere how how do you narrow things down and approach your hunt when they can eat every darn place they turn okay so we gotta think this through there's acorns everywhere that's not a limiting factor Uh, you may know in the past that certain trees for whatever reason deer prefer the acorns there first over other trees but what else is there so if acorns aren't working for me because they're everywhere is there a rub line is there a pinch point going in those acorns Acorns are really dry. If you're eating a lot of acorns, they're going to water. That's a given. 
acorns have low moisture content compared to lush clover or soybeans or something. So they're, if, if they're really on acorns, people get all goofy about acorns, but what else do they have to have every day? Well, they have to have water. So is I still got you, Mark? Yep, still got you. Sorry. No worries. So water can be a big thing when deer are heavy on acorns and water, unless you got a, you know, a lake or a big Creek or something's got usually be a more limited factor. And by the way, again, you know, don't have data to prove this, but I've seen it a lot. Deer prefer drinking out of a little pond, you know, cow track, something small than a big rushing river. And if you think about when they're by that big rushing river, they don't have near as good predator fence. That's making some noise that kind of reduces their hearing potential. And, you know, and they, a predator could trap them against the water line, make them get in the water. So I love a little 10 or 20 foot pond uh, for deer hunting. Does your, does your take on the big acorn year at all change from time of year? So like, does, does water really play into it earlier in the year, but not so much during the rut? Or is like that kind of thing the same, you're going to run the same program in the heavy acorn years no matter what, which is find the limiting factor in this case, maybe water or that pinch point and, and play that one. Yeah. Pinch points are always awesome, but water, of course, during the year season, you would expect it's hotter and deer don't have sweat gums, sweat glands, excuse me. They pant to get rid of water like a dog. So uh, you're eating something really dry and it's hot and dry outside. Water just becomes even more valuable at that early season. And then a little later during the pre-rut, where the bucks aren't necessarily on the feeding pattern, they're eating, but they're, you know, that first 5% of the does are receptive, so they're bouncing around trying to get that limited date. Uh, Again, they're moving a lot. They have to have water. They're like an athlete. They have to have water. Uh, So water, I think, is especially in areas where water is more limited. I mean, Water in South Florida is not a limiting factor. Don't try to hunt water. Hey, you'd probably get bit by a, a gator. And B, it's just everywhere. You know, you're not, there's no pinch point there. But if you're in ridge and valley type stuff, there's not a creek in every valley, a little pond on a ridge top can be a great place to hunt during those times. The early, early season, it's hot, if it's hot and dry. And during the pre-rut when deer are just running a lot, covering a lot more yards per day and need some water. Yeah. Speaking of it being hot then, let's, let's consider a new scenario. That's the opposite of that. So let's say it's October 15th, mid October. And the first big cold front of the year hits it's dropping. I don't know, 25 degrees cooler than it was on the previous day's high. And you have some weird scheduling things though going on and you are only available to hunt the next morning after the cold front hits or that evening. So you get you can hunt the next day after the cold front. It's either the morning or the evening. You can only pick one. Which of those sits would you choose to hunt? Why is that? And then, you know, paint for me your perfect spot for that kind of hunt on that kind of day. I'm going to throw in just a couple more variables. It's almost always easier for hunters to move into position in the afternoon when we would think deer are bedded up. Yeah, I love morning hunting, but unless you've got that special stand and what I call a backdoor stand, where you mm-hmm. know the deer out in the bean field and you're coming in a totally opposite direction and the wind's right and you just let them come to you, afternoon hunts are easier for hunters to get in position. So I'm going to weigh that in. If everything's equal, I'm going with the afternoon hunt. 
Um, I love hunting the day after a front goes through. And, and if that front passed midday and I can hunt in the afternoon, that would be awesome. But weigh in those odds of the first one, I might fudge a little bit toward the afternoon hunt. Okay. Uh, by the way, I like about a 10% or more greater temperature change. It, it, a lot of people get hung up on the actual degrees, but 10 degrees between 70 and 80 and 10 degrees between 20 and 30, there's a whole big difference there. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm looking for a percent change, and, and I, I really like days that are 10% or more change. That's favorable. So if it's warm in the fall and it's cooler, 10% cooler, I really like that. If it's been wicked cold and the first day it warms up 10%, deer are going to be everywhere. They're going to be feeding. So I look at it as percent change versus uh, an actual number. And, and I like right after the front is passed, if I can approach hunt next without alerting deer. Okay. Uh, I love it. So that first evening then is your chance. You've got the nice temperature drop. Can you paint for me a picture of what that location would be? Let's say on, on your home farm. Can you imagine what your you know, all other things being equal with no, obviously we have no MRI, but if you could imagine a perfect situation for October 15th, you're waiting for the afternoon hunt. What kind of spot would be perfect for that day in your mind? Yeah. If we have a white oak crop, you're going to white oaks here in most places. And we, we have white oaks, but we have probably 80% red oaks. So our white oaks are kind of pinch points, if you will. And so I'm probably going to be in white oaks, big, mature white oaks, and I'm going to be on a ridge top. Not the deer, again, aren't eating on slopes, but my wind is going to, the, the wind direction is going to stay much more consistent on a ridge top. And, and I kind of explain that if you're a trout fisherman, ever fished a good trout stream, there's eddies everywhere because it's hitting a rock or yeah. cutting a bank or whatever. And then if you go to the big metro area and they got these concrete ditches for flood control, there's no eddies out there because they're, the, the water's not hitting anything. And so it's, that's so true for air movement. So I love hunting Western Kansas. I look like a really good hunter in Western Kansas because the wind comes off the Rockies today. It did yesterday. It did a hundred years ago and it's going to do it in the next hundred years. So the wind direction is pretty doggone consistent unless there's a big front or storm going on. And it comes off those Rockies and just sweeps across that flat prairie out there. Yeah, And so you know the wind direction, and everything's in section line, so you can almost always get east of it. Wind's going to be out of west, something west, and, and get to your stand. And, and the same thing is true if, you're, have, if you own the property or it's your grandma's property or whatever, and you've done some habitat work, and you have done TSI's timber stand improvement, or you, know, you took out a bunch of lower-quality trees and left the best, there's fewer eddies out there. There's more room for the wind to build up speed going tree to tree. When you're hunting in closed canopy, thick forest, there's going to be eddies everywhere. And it's really tough not to get busted. Yeah, so true. I've been there. (laughs) Um, Would your answer to that question on choosing the morning or the evening, my original question, would that change if I fast forwarded the date from October 15th up to November 15th? Or would you still pick that evening? No, you know, it, it. in November, I'd probably have to skip work, get in trouble, and hunt both times. You, know, so, I mean, I, you, you, you got to be out there. But I love mornings in November. I'm a morning person. I'm a morning hunter. Uh, but that time of year, I feel we can get away with more entering our stand because the bucks are not on a pattern. They're, they're looking for a date, and they're not on a pattern, or rarely are they on a pattern. And so you, I, I'll risk more getting closer to bedding areas or whatever 
take a more direct route because the buck is liable to come from about anywhere unless you got a really great pinch point. You know, it just narrows down, a river narrows you down, whatever. And I'm going to be hunting mornings that time of year and yeah. evenings if I can, but if only one in the morning. Yeah. I like your idea. Just paying the, paying the consequences, skipping work and making it happen. <laughs> uh, I got another one here. That's, that's a little bit of a downer, another downer here for you, but let's say you hunted your evening of October 15th and let's yeah. say it worked out great. You picked that perfect spot and the buck comes in and you get a shot at the deer. In your mind's eye, when you think back on this shot, now let's say you're not filming, so you can't actually look at the film, sure. but in your mind's sure. eye, you're thinking, man, I think I think it hit lungs, maybe like back of the lungs, and you decide to get on the blood trail within an hour, hour and a half, something like that, and the trail isn't as good as you were hoping for. It's kind of spotty, and it takes you you know, past 200 yards. You're still on blood, but it's spotty, and you have not found him now. After about 200, 250 yards, it's been you know two hours probably now since the shot. What would you do in that specific scenario? You think it's back of lungs, 200 plus yard kind of spotty blood trail. Do you keep pushing a deer like that? Do you stop? Uh, and let's say this was an evening hunt, right? So it's after dark now. How would you handle this specific tracking scenario? Yeah, and, and uh, unless there is a big rain front moving in. I'm backing out. October 15th, most of the whitetails range. It's cool enough. Meat can take an awful lot without spoiling. Way more than I think most hunters realize. And I'm just backing out. Uh, I I might have been tempted to back out 100 yards. Now, I'm going to try, if I recover the arrow, to really study, smell, touch, how sticky is the blood, of course, what color it is. I'm trying to gain as much intel from the arrow and the spore on the ground as I can before I ever get 200 yards down the trail. But if I'm 200 yards and the blood trail's not changing, it's just drip, drip, drip. I'm backing out for sure. Yeah. And back out all the way till the next morning. Is that right? Yeah, I'll, I'll be there at sunrise. By the next morning, not 100% of the time, but the odds are really great. The deer is has either passed or is going to survive, or is going to survive for five or six days until infection sets in. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope in that scenario, when you wait the next morning, he's right there and you got him. But we're going we're gonna to pretend like you didn't. And we're going to pretend that it is now the third week of October. And you're hunting again. And here's a scenario that I've actually been in myself. This is, this is pulled right out of my own history. And it's one I've had different, you know, I think a lot of us have had something similar to this. Um, you're hunting this buck. You've gotten daylight trail camera pictures of him a handful of evenings in daylight in a small hidey hole food plot. You have hunted that spot two times in the month of October so far. So over the last 21 days, you've went in twice after him. It's like you get a daylight picture, maybe on your cell camera, and you think, all right, I got the same conditions. I go back in the next night. He's a no-show. And then it happens again like a week later. You get the daylight picture of him on food. You try to hunt him there again the next night. He's a no-show. Each time you've done it, the same thing has happened. What do you do in that scenario if you're trying to get that buck? It's now third week of October. You've had this thing happen a couple times. What, if anything, would you do to try to fine-tune moving in towards the you know pre-rut into the rut? Yeah, probably going to go back to an early conversation and 
uh, reposition a few cameras in the area and not intrude too much, but try to pick up some more intel. And I would really consider my approach. Is this buck really that random? And it may be because my show cameras are getting pictured once a week. And those are the toughest bucks to hunt. Or am I alerting this deer somehow getting there? Mm-hmm. And often we think, well, the trail camera picture shows him coming from pick a direction west. He's bedded way down that holler somewhere. But many, many times deer have a very circuitous or curvy route getting to where they're going to feed or wherever they're going. And heck, he may be, you know, he may be walking 30 yards from where I'm parking my vehicle or walking in or whatever. And so I never count on until I, unless I really know my habitat and I've maintained my habitat, I've done a lot of improvements and I've kind of planned how deer are going to travel. We really never know how deer are getting there based on a still picture. I would add this though. Um, I have no problem hunting the same stand for many days in a row. If I'm very convinced I have not alerted deer, if you're not alerting deer, it doesn't matter. You know, people always ask me, Hey, can you hunt that stand more than one, one day? Can you hunt it two days? You hunted a hundred days if you're not alerting deer. May not be a good choice to hunt it that many days, but it, it's all about alerting deer. Like I have a buddy here lives close by me and good mountain hunter. He missed, you know, the buck of a lifetime here in the Ozarks with a bow at 20 yards off a big oak tree and buck or Darrow hit the ground and you know ran off. He's just sick. Calls me up, just just sick. I said, man, that deer just heard some noise. I'd go back if the wind's the same tomorrow. I'd go back there, no problem. If he did not look at you, see you, act like he smelled you, he just heard some noise. And he probably does not associate that with human danger. You know, a similar kind of offshoot of that. We talked earlier about how how we both prefer, you know, wheeled access or exit. Mm-hmm. What about that kind of situation, like hunting the same place and every night to get out of there, you get picked up. Do you feel like it eventually has some kind of accrual of negativity where you know, you hunt that stand six times in November throughout October and you get picked up every night. Is eventually that going to start to kind of wear on things or are you, you feel like that's pretty bulletproof and you can get away with that over and over as long as the other things you mentioned are true. Yeah. As long as the other factors come into play, I don't worry about it. I think about golf courses or going down, you know, any city highway, St. Louis, wherever, Atlanta, uh, really condition those things as long as they don't associate them with danger. Like there's some great research where uh, everyone sees people hunting over feeder in South Texas and, the, you know, 20 bucks pile in 17,000 does, it seems like, or whatever. And, you know, day after day, well, that's limited hunting pressure on those big ranches. If you go to the deep South where hunting is, you know, like going to school, you just do it every day. Um, those feeders get so much pressure, deer become extremely nocturnal feeders, and you'd be much better to hunt somewhere else. So it's got a little, you need to take all these, I guess, in context a little bit. And my big thing is to try to not alert deer, because I think we'd all rather hunt a golf course deer than in the middle of a public land deer, <laughs> where the deer just kind of stand there and look at you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I like to, and golf courses that, man, they got herbicide and fungicide and insecticide and mowing and people and golf carts old lady who laying in the bushes looking for a golf ball and the deer don't care they stand around right because there's no perceived danger or my favorite one is i used to have quite a bit of work for dod department of defense you know that's been about 10 percent or budget on environment or wildlife whatever 
And, and many times I've seen, you know, 150, 200 of America's best down there practicing with automatic weapons and 20 deer feeding on the downwind side. There's two major lessons there. The deer are totally conditioned to it. Of course, our best are not shooting at them because they'd probably, you know, have to go to the brig or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they're always going to be on the predominant downwind side because gunpowder is a high percent nitrogen. That's probably the most fertilized place on the base where all those gunshots are going. Huh. We're blowing that gun smoke. And they will be our, our trap ranges or anything else. You'll see a ton of deer on big shooting ranges, usually because it's super fertilized with nitrogen. Interesting. Very interesting. I want to take one step back to the uh, the original question, that, that food plot where you, you're getting the daylight pictures, but then every time you go in there the next day, he's not there, even though he was daylight the day before. And you mentioned, you know, you should do a little bit of, uh, oh, I don't know, kind of uh, assess your access and think about, you know, am I blowing him out? Am I alerting him some way? I've sometimes thought about that and and just not known. And I've been, man, I don't know. I don't know if I am. I don't think I am. But I've sometimes thought, I'm just going to throw a curveball. I'm just going to take a completely different route than I ever have. And it may be way longer, way more pain in the butt. Maybe it'll hurt me in other ways. But I have sometimes thought like, hey, just try something completely different than you always do. Because something's not quite working in that way. Um, do you ever consider that? Do you ever do something like that? Uh, I do, but I will admit it's usually out of frustration and often not the best choice. I mean, if you've got <laughs> a planned route and you're pretty confident it's not alerting deer, your your buddy's dropping you off, or you're walking down the road or whatever, versus going through the bushes and brush and making a lot of noise and leaving a lot of scent on stuff you're wiping on getting there probably not the best i'm not saying it hasn't worked for people but probably not the best idea yeah uh i I would probably be more likely to if i had an extra stand i need to pull that stand just moving if i if i have truck camera pictures and the buck again always comes in from the west i'm gonna move down in in the timber 50 yards and see if he's staging out there out of view of me yeah yeah it makes a lot of sense uh, speaking of bucks out of or kind of out of range, but maybe in view, I've got another scenario here that speaks to or that you know I think we can speak to what to do in a situation where there's that buck that's out of range. Let's say continuing down the calendar, late October, we're sitting in a tree stand somewhere and we see a mature buck that you're interested in shooting, but he's about a hundred yards away, and he is on a path that if he were to continue about another one hundred yards eventually pass through your wind so in this scenario late october 100 yard away shooter buck but heading towards your wind eventually what's your go-to move are you gonna aggressively call are you gonna not call at all because you're worried he'll eventually circle down wind what's your take how do you handle that yeah that's a great question mark and and one of the most important things about calling or grunting is considering the wind and the buck's likely path. I think that's more important than the actual call you're using. Uh, so if he's 100 yards from hitting my wind, I'm probably going to grunt because I'm going to gamble. He's going to turn. He's not coming straight to me, but he's going to turn and get shooting range before he cuts my wind. If he's 30 yards from hitting my wind, his arc is probably going to take him into my wind. And I'm I'm just, I'm not going to add, I'm not going to let him pinpoint me by calling. I'm just going to let him hit my wind and, and wish he had. Yeah. So I, I use a grunt call a lot. It's one of my favorite tools. I don't blind grunt much because 
unless I'm just in a stand where, you know, my back's to a river or highway or something, and they're just not getting behind me very likely. Blind calling, uh, I had a really good friend, still have a really good friend, Mickey Hellickson, did a bunch of work with Jeep or radio callers and rattling on a large ranch in Texas, really high dollar research when we were both were in grad school many years ago. And I don't remember exact numbers, it's just like 30 years ago, but I think as many bucks circled around him, he, they would have observers up in these 30 foot tall stands and he'd be on the ground rattling. And he only saw like, I don't remember, 30, 40, 50% of the bucks because the rest come in from behind him and wind at him. So, but the bucks he saw were bucks he happened to see out in front of him with a positive wind and rattled and they, they did come in and he hmm. saw them. So I'm, I'm real selective when I, I use my grunt, but I have no problem throwing it out there as long as I think the buck's natural path is going to get to me before, or at least in shot range before he cuts my wind. Yeah. Is there, and I know this is, you probably don't have a hard line, but is there any kind of, if you had to put a number on it, about what distance is it that that buck needs to be away from hitting your wind where you'll feel comfortable? You mentioned that 30 yards would be too close, but is there a maximum? Like, is it 60? Is it 50? Is it, what would that number be? I don't know. I think it kind of depends on the lay of land. You can kind of look out there and envision where's a buck most likely to travel. You know, is there a bunch of rocks or a fence or something that's going to turn him towards you a little sooner? Uh, I think that's a, Side by side. I will tell you one time. Uh, I was hunting on a property where we really needed to remove a lot of females, and a, a female six-month-old deer come in, and you know, landlord just said, "Hey, Grant, you, you can shoot any buck you want, but I really need you shooting every doe you can." In the states, really liberal seasons, and so sure enough, you know, 34 minutes for dark, this young of the year female comes in and gets about seven yards away, and I said, "Well." I, what the you know my my host told me to do so i launch an arrow mm-hmm. and it it dies seven yards behind me and like okay one one tag down think about it. and it's just you know it's prime now we're 20 minutes of dark and food plot behind me acorns in front of me i'm it's, it's a good setup sitting there sitting there and sure enough i look over and a, a very mature deer's easing up the ridge he's down there about 80 yards and he's kind of coming a direction that's going to bring him behind me to that fawn instead of in my shooting lane. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, this is horrible. I mean, it's, you know, it's a four-day hunt. Here comes a nice buck. But it looks like he's going to miss my shooting lane and go to that fawn. And that's exactly what happens. And it's important to remember, deer do not associate dead animals laying around like we might associate finding a dead person in the woods while we're hunting or something mm-hmm. at all. So he walks up, and this is way pre-rut, real early season. I can't get a shot through the back of the tree brush. I didn't trim any limbs out the back. And he's smelling the fawn and, you know, doing the normal buck thing. Like, oh, my gosh, this is just, you know, so close but so far away. And uh, then he walked over and smelled my arrow, which he wasn't expecting. And that kind of alerted him a little bit. And he, he kind of just started cutting a half circle. And when that half circle hit my range, I, I poked one through the boiler room. So in that case, in that particular case, being patient <laughs> worked. But I didn't grunt because I thought the grunt was out of season, it was early season, and the smell of that female on the ground was too much of a combination. Yeah. Yeah. And it just worked out right. And and by the way, I'd like to share here that about 25% of the mature bucks I've tagged since I've been old enough to keep records 
have been tagged out of that same stand or blind that I had already harvested a doe that hunt, not a week before, not the day before, that same hunt, like an hour before, 30 minutes before. And I've never had a big buck come in and bust out of there because there was a dead doe laying on the ground. I just hope if I'm firing hunting, I double shoulder shoot and try to drop him right there within range. I don't want him running over the hill. And, and in my mind, that is the best attractant I've ever used was a doe harvested during that same hunt. Do you ever get them? I guess, I mean, I guess that example you just shared, have you ever had other situations where the buck smells that doe and comes right into range to that spot and stops? I mean, Oh, many times we have yeah. many episodes showing that. Yeah. I mean, every, it seems like every year here, one of me or one of my guests, whatever has that scenario right here on the proven grounds every year. Cause we try to harvest a lot of does and my neighbors try to harvest a lot of bucks. You kind of find that balance in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's happened to my daughters and Daniel and myself multiple times. And these are tend to be often pretty mature bucks. And they're walked right in there, especially during the rut. Missouri's farm season's during the rut. And they're poked their antlers at her and try to get her to stand up. They do not associate death like we do. I find a dead human out there in the, you know, in the timber. I'm freaking out and, you know, calling the cops or something. <laughs> but deer uh, just do not have that response at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good reminder. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So... On hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. And use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash MEATEATER. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you Great smoke at 180 degrees. Or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. This this is my way of bull staying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it. Sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking. Create searing, crisping, and browning. Food is going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. 
cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. What about this one? This is This is kind of a different iteration of that shot example I mentioned earlier. You know, I talked about you get the shot, not necessarily as great of a hit as you wanted, yada, yada, yada. What about a situation, we'll say it's early November, it's a morning hunt, you get a shot of deer and you just miss completely. You blank on this buck, the buck runs off. What do you do in the hours following that? Let's say the miss is like 9 a.m., what do you do from 9 a.m. through the rest of that day? Do you just keep on hunting or do you back out and go home and shoot? Do you do anything to check what's going on? Uh, what would you be thinking about or considering or doing after a miss like that on the I mean, 9 a.m. early November? Yeah, so I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we know we shut our eyes or punched a trigger or, you know, we did something. And in the heat of the battle, it's a little tougher to, to, uh, sort that out. But if I whiffed a shot, I, I missed, I, I'm to blame, not the bow, not the side. I, I missed. I'm right there in the tree. And I do a lot of talking to myself about my confidence because my confidence is the, the most, the worst part of my shooting skill at that time. If, if I turn around to the cameraman or just think to myself, man, I, the pin was solid. It was just sitting there. How did I miss that thing? Then I'm probably getting down at, and and probably what I would do I tend to have a squirrel. I'm a hillbilly, so I tend to have a squirrel arrow in my quiver. I don't know if you know what a squirrel arrow yeah. is. It's something yeah, you yeah. care if you bust in a stump or something. But it's going to be tuned. I take tuning very serious, and it's going to fly like my broadheads. And I'm going to back out and, or, or shoot right from the tree there. You know, I'm going to find a rotten stump or something, and, and I'm going to whip it. And if I hit, then I go, well, I did just miss. And if I also miss a foot or two or 10 feet or whatever it was, then I'm going home and tuned it. What about that self-talk? You you mentioned like if your confidence is shot, you're going to kind of talk to yourself. Like what goes on in the head of Grant Woods after a whiff? How do you psych yourself up? How do you shake yourself out of it? Uh, What does that look like? Mark, I'm 61 and I've had two kidney transplants. I'm in great health, as you know, Uh, but I'm too old and and had laid there in the bed too many times waiting for it to go beep the next time. 
<laughs> to make excuses in my life anymore. So for mm-hmm. me personally, I'm going to own my errors. That's just something I live by. And so I'm going to admit, but and usually I whiffed it. I, here, as a bow hunter, here's my thing. I I have pretty good form after all these years, and you know I shoot decent. I'm, I can make it happen. When I air, I shut my eyes. Target panic after all these years. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if I'm shooting at a target or a deer or a hog or whatever. When I miss, it's like ninety nine point nine. It's never the bow's fault almost because I don't have my bow tuned. I'm I'm gonna know my equipment. I shut my eyes, and it's amazing how far that pin can move between when you, you tell your brain release and when you actually release, if you shut your eyes. Mm-hmm. So for me, just personally me, uh, again, I'm going to whip the squirrel area arrow and I'm going to tell myself, you keep your eyes open. If you know, some people tape on their bow, pick a spot or some of those saying like that. Mine is keep your eyes open. And, mm-hmm. and if I keep my eyes open, it's, it's probably going to work out just fine. I mean, you always, you know, you can drop your bow, booger up your sights, but if I drop my bow, heaven forbid, going into a stand, I'm going to shoot with my phone light or something before I ever get up in that stand. I'm not going to sit there and worry all morning because I'm not going to be a good hunter. Yeah. Yeah. I've been through those situations myself too. And, uh, and yeah, it's no fun, but you just got to push through it and own it and get better. Right. I think for all of us, this is, Maybe a little off target here, no pun intended, but if we own our mistakes, life just goes a lot easier. So true. One of the most important things I feel like my dad ever taught me was just accept responsibility for stuff. There's no better way to deal with something than accept it, take responsibility, and do something about it. Let's take, I'm, gonna, I'm on your dime here, but I'm going to take this one step further. Please do. I, I have a, a counselor, not a counselor, but a, a wise person that teaches me a lot. And his statement is your lack of responsibility becomes someone else's responsibility. Hmm. And I think when it's framed like that, at least to me, I'm I'm going to be better accepting my own responsibility. Yeah. Out of out of almost the guilt of forcing that obligation on someone else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, take a simple thing. Okay, I my wife's been taking care of her dad, and I leave a mess in the sink, and she's had a long day, and she comes home, she's got to clean it up. That's way off subject, but you know, heck yeah, take five minutes, to clean it up, take care of your own responsibility. Yeah, yeah, man, we'd be we'd be all be in a much better place, I think, if we could always live that way, right? It's one of those sometimes easier yeah. said than done things, but uh, man, absolutely. absolutely, a lot of truth to that. Okay, I got a few more of these for you, Grant, and then I'll let you let you off the hook. Let's talk through one thing that happens every, I don't know, three, four, five years, it seems, across the country, and people always bemoan it, which is we get to, you know, the peak of the, when it's supposed to be the best part of the hunting season, you know, that first week or two of November. Let's mm-hmm. say for this scenario, we'll say November 7th, right? And a lot of people like to say that's maybe the best day of the year. Sure, I've heard it a lot, yeah. Yeah. But here's the catch. Conditions are poor. We've got the hot, muggy, nasty November that when people get it, they're just so bummed because they sunk their week of vacation time into it. Let's say November 7th through the 12th or 13th is going to be in the, you know, whatever it is for your area. Let's say it's going to be in the 60s or 70s, which is too hot. Will you dramatically change the way you hunt that week 
out of the usual because of the temperatures, or are you going to hunt in your uh-huh. usual primo rut spots despite it? No, I probably will. And it's not that the deer aren't moving. You know, I was involved in a research project many years ago, university stuff, and several of us researchers around America put together about 14,000 fetal dates. So humans go to the doctor and they take an ultrasound and measure crown to rump of the fetus and tell you your baby's going to be born X. You can also backdate to the point of conception. And so for deer, we we really know when they breed in most areas. Some states don't take very specific data, but that's not a mystery. You don't have to print a new calendar every year. We know what's going on. And so you're going to know the peak or the range or whatever. But if it's just really hot and, you know, deer got fat on and they're, you know, they're in really good shape, no one likes running a sprint when there's, you know, got a, a big down coat on. So they're probably going to move a little bit more at night, but they're still moving. It's the prom. You're going to the prom. Um, but I'm going to hunt areas where, because it's warm and muggy, my scent's going to be really tough to control. And maybe on cold days, I got some areas where the thermals are sinking down and I can slide in there in the cold morning and do good. I'm going to avoid those areas. My number one thing year round or what, during hunting season is not to alert deer because there's always, almost always another day, right? Unless it's the last day of season, there's another day. But, but if you alert a deer and booger up his pattern for a week or two, it's really tough hunting. So I, I'm going to hunt that, that week, that time I, I'm in the Midwest also. So, you know, Halloween to November 15th, I, I'm going to be out there somewhere. And, and, and the conditions are rough. I'm still going to be out there, but I'm going to be really picky about where I put my stand so deer can get within range. Hmm. Are there any other types of areas that you would think would be more attractive at that time of year? Like, I mean, what some people would say hunt more towards water on those hotter rut days, anything yeah. like that. Yeah. I think there's, there's goody that I mean, I like to, put all the odds in my favor. So water in a bottleneck that's just uh, downwind of a bedding area. So a buck's cruising through there looking for a receptive doe and he can get a drink along the way. Uh, you know, I'm going to put two or three things together, not just one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember who said this, but I remember hearing from someone once where they said that they will never sit a stand or a tree or blind or anything unless there's three really, really good reasons to be there. There's got to be at least three travel corridors or three, you know, motivations for a deer to be in that exact spot. And that's always helped me really fine tune things. It shouldn't be just like, oh, there's one trail. It's got to be this and this and this all lined up right. You know, and so there's there's so many more factors like, you know, you're in southern Iowa and there's food everywhere early season. Food may not be the big play, right? And you're in the Smoky Mountains and there's not much food anywhere. Food's a huge play on the exact same day, same conditions. So mm-hmm. we really need to do some consideration of multiple factors when we opt how we're going to hunt and the techniques we're going to use that day. Yeah. Yeah, so true. I want to ask you about something that once caused you to get hate mail from what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> um Let's say you're out, it's later in the year now, it's gun season, which in Missouri, what that opens somewhere in mid, mid-November, mid right? Yeah, mid-November to Thanksgiving, yeah. Yeah, so it's gun season, and you're hunting a spot, it's kind of, uh, you can see down to a brushy kind of opening, and your big shooter buck you've been after steps out in that brush stuff, 
and it's a mixture of grass and some, you know, some woody browsy kind of stuff. That buck is within shooting range. He stopped. He's broadside, but his vitals are covered with some of that grass and brush. You can see through it. You can even see his shoulder, but there is stuff in and around it. And you would have to punch through some of that grass, some of that brush with your firearm. Would you take that shot? And why or why not? Yeah, so I did have that exact scenario, as you know, and I did not. And man, I got loaded up with hate mail. Holy <laughs> mackerel. Uh, I, I didn't know there was that many ways to call a biologist stupid to tell you. The truth. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. We used to teach some deer hunting schools and we would take, and this isn't exactly like grass, but it's pretty doggone close. We would take eighth inch doll rods, so real flimsy doll rods, little wooden rods and drill holes and two to fours and just stack these little doll rods in there. So a, a 30 caliber bullet just couldn't get, you either hit it in the middle because I'm not that great a shot or hit it on the edge. You, you were not passing a bullet through two feet of these doll rods without hitting one. You may barely wing it. You may center punch it. And we put it out there at hundred yards. And then we put a, you know, great big old targets, paper, moving paper, actually at one meter and three meters or one yard and three yards behind it. And at one yard behind it, we usually hit the paper, but not where we were aiming. You hit the deer in the butt or the nose or something like that. Go above him, blow him. At three meters, we usually didn't cut paper. That bullet was turning sideways so fast. Wow. 223, 308, 30 six. So a lot of that hate mail had to do with I was using a 308, and I, you know, a lot of words with a few. Uh, adjectives not included was you're not shooting a bow shoot through the grass you're not shooting a bb gun shoot through the grass mm -hmm. you know if you're if the 308 won't do it take you a 300 wind mag and i will say i only weigh 170 pounds i'm not shooting a 300 wind mag at a white tail deer yeah um but the bottom line is bullets are you know pick a number they're moving two or three thousand feet a second depending on how you're loaded what you're shooting and you think about anything moving that fast it doesn't have to hit hardly anything to change its course. And a bullet is a long cylindrical shape. So if it just gets just ever so slightly out of straight, straight towards the target, all of a sudden it's, it's creating an eddy. It gets a lot of wind on one side, the direction it's going, and it's creating an eddy on the off side. Like if you have a canoe, if you're a fisherman or a kayak or whatever, and you want to cross a pretty fast stream, just go straight across it. You put your canoe or kayak in there at 45 degrees. You don't have to paddle. It'll just shoot you straight across because it's pushing on one side and making the eddy on the other, and it'll just take you straight across. Well, that's exactly what happens with a bullet quickly, within inches. So I passed that deer. I ended up harvesting him last year, years later, with a bow, which was much more thrilling because he was so old. He had a smaller rack, but gosh, I'd chased that deer for many, many years. And for me, and just the, the responsibility I personally accept as a hunter, I'm not going to risk wounding the deer versus harvesting the deer. So I, I did give that deer a pass. Yeah. And I, I hope I would do the same thing again um, yeah. with no matter what caliber I'm shooting. And, and I just realized through personal experience and through talking with engineers at various ammo plants that, bullets deflect easily there's not really a brush gun it's not like well i got daddy's old 45 70 here i just shoot through whatever you know i shoot i hear this story all the time i i got this email a bunch well i've shot through a bunch of three inch saplings and killed deer 
<laughs> like, man, you can't keep from hitting a three-inch sapling. You better go to the range some more. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, I, for me and my level of respect for the critters, what I want to do in life, I'm not going to take that shot. Yeah. I think very often the best shot taken is is none. And uh respect you a lot for doing that. It's, it's always one of those things that's easier said than done. And in that moment when something you want so badly is right there, it's really hard to have that self-control. But uh but you're right. You can't you can't ever get a bullet back and you don't want it to go south. So Yeah, and, and when I was younger I took some iffy shots and didn't recover deer. So I've learned that lesson. I'm not I am not perfect. And you know, when I was young, I was like every other hillbill in Yozarts, I had my lever action 30-30, thinking we were going to do a man drive on National Forest when there was no breaks, no openings, no nothing. You know, that's just <laughs> how we hunted. And so mm-hmm. I've had the advantage of learning some of those lessons through time. And, and and the victory, the you know, the glory of the victory to me is not e- equal to the pain of defeat. So I just don't want to wound an animal yeah, if I can yeah. avoid it, if I can put the odds in my favor to avoid it. Yep. So true. All right. Uh, this one's not really a hypothetical scenario, but I, I got to ask you about it anyways, because it's so intriguing to me. Um, I've heard you talk about hunting like a bobcat. Yeah. Could you could you explain to me what what you mean by that? What does it mean to hunt like a bobcat? How do you do that? And like, what's the situation when you would actually take that approach? Love hunting like a bobcat. Uh, so bobcats. You know, they may have a den. They don't go to the same den every day or usually don't. They got two or three places, depending on wind direction or coyote scenario, whatever. But they, you get them on your choke. If you're in bobcat country, you get pictures of bobcats just walking logging roads all the time. They're just, they're just moving down the road. And then when they get in their hunting areas, not one area, they, bobcats, based on GPS scholars, whatnot, tend to hunt here today and there tomorrow, there tomorrow. It's like they know, well, I've been through there. I, I spooked a game. I need to hunt a, a different area the next day. And I'm not saying that's what they do, but that's what the data seems to show. And so they're just cruising until they get to their hunting place. And then when they're hunting, most hunters have seen this in the standard blind. Man, it's it's not take 10 steps to the next tree and stop. It's step, stop, step, stop, set down, look, stop, stop. They spend more time still than they do moving. So we call this, we call it spot and stalk, but bobcat hunting is actually stalking trying to spot. We're stalking trying to spot and with a bow it's a real thrill when you get when you walk up within 30 yards of a bed of deer or feeding deer my goodness you just add about 150 inches to that rack because it's going to be an awesome experience i mean that <laughs> that 100 inch deer comes to 250 every day of the month um and and i love doing this in habitat that's quiet enough to let you do it i mean you know a bone dry day in october with six inches of oak leaves you're not going to do it very well with a bow but get some moisture or down south, you know, they, they thin about every fifth row of pines very commonly. And I love getting on the end of that pine stand where, the, you know, where the wind's in my face and just creeping up and barely peeking around the corner. And, you know, maybe you see a deer too far, deer you don't want to harvest. And you slide through there and go to the next row and you finally find a deer you want to harvest. Then you back up one row and, you know, cut that distance and then just barely quietly stock within range that's just a thrilling for me way to hunt just thrilling you're not sitting still you're not looking at your phone you're kind of you know you're predator mode every second and and years ago many years ago i was hunting with a buddy on public land in western kansas one of the first years they allowed non-resident hunters to hunt out there 
And we were just sitting in a big old public area of native grass. It was too tall for me to see over it, setting down. I remember this clearly. And I'm kind of a tall guy. And I stood out like a sore thumb if I stood up. So I was crouching all morning. It was very uncomfortable, crouching, looking, crouching, looking. And about 9.30 or so, there was some ag fields down the bottom and this public land on top. And we saw this, to me, really good 11-point buck, just giant shoulders, end up weighing about 300 pounds, come up in this CRP. And um, bed down. And in CRP, one night there's a tree or a landmark. He just beds down about 600 yards away. We're looking across the valley. We were hunting for this purpose, sitting on one side, looking into the other side. And we're like, oh my gosh, it really happened. And, and so we're all excited, and and we can't go straight to him. So we drive around a section line, get the wind right. And, and, and you can't see anything. I mean, the bedded buck and, you know, five foot tall switchgrass, you can't see anything. So we're crawling and peeking over and looking. And about 80 yards out, my buddy sees something not moving. And it ended up being a tine of this buck. And we crawl on up there and we get up there. It's just such a cool hunt. Get about, I don't know, 15, 20 yards away. I happened to be hunting with a recurve at the time. And uh, spot a cock pheasant between us and the buck. We're afraid to flush that pheasant. So we just lay there till he feeds on through. My buddy stays back and I'm, you know, elbows and knees, barely pushing and pushing my bow in front of me. And he's laying, and this is so typical for big bucks, right below an old terrace. This used to be an ag field years ago and highly erosion prone soil. So there's a big terrace. And he's laying right below it. And I get to the top side. And this, this is a large deer. And, and I'm just like, for three minutes, I'm just in awe. I've never been that close to a wild free ranging big buck. I'm just I'm sure my buddy's thinking, what is wrong with Woods? Why haven't you shot? <laughs> and, and finally, I realized I was hunting with a 60-inch Black Widow recurve. And when I'm laying on the ground, I can't pull the thing back, right? I mean, it's just too much grass in the way and stuff. So he's awake. He's kind of like they do head up, chewing his could. And he's got this hill to his back. And he's just moving his head about 30 degrees watching the front. And finally, I just said, okay, when he gets to the farthest one side, start swinging back, I'm going to stand up and shoot in one motion. Of course, with a recurve, I'm an instinctive shooter. You just pull it back and launch, right? And, and so that's what I did. And I pegged this big old buck. And it was such a super high stimulation hunt that that's when I started trying to hunt like a bobcat. Mm. And, and again, I'm, you know, if I don't think there's any deer in the area, I'm getting to where there's some deer in the area and I'm slowing way down. And I do more looking than I do walking. And and I, if the wind changes, I change my direction. I got my little puffer bottle or whatever, throwing leaves, whatever. I just keep the wind in my face. And maybe a big acorn flat. And I think, boy, I think deer pass through here about 839 in the morning feeding acorns. If I can't figure out what street they're going through, I love hunting like a bobcat. And even with the bow, folks, if you can shoot 30 yards, and I would say the number one thing is wind direction. Number two thing is patience. All my buddies want to go too fast. Well, Grant, I don't see any deer in hundred yards ahead of us. Let's just walk the next hundred yards. We're making so much noise. I mean, I'm going step at a time and I actually see as many deer to my side as I do in front of me. They're just coming to your side and you just get a tree between you and then let them walk by you. Hmm. Yeah. I, I can see the appeal. I've, I've gotten more and more willing to try things on the ground like that. And it, it continues to prove to be a lot of fun and surprisingly effective. So I love it. You know, so few people hunt like that anymore. It's almost like their guard is down on that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, I really enjoy it. I, I highly recommend if you, you know, anyone to at least give it a try just once and see if you don't really like it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 
All right, Grant, I got a final set of rapid fire questions. Just looking for like a, like a one word or a couple word answer. We'll bounce through these really quick and then uh, you will have made it through with the gauntlet. <laughs> okay. So here's, here's the final rundown. You ready? Yes, sir. Okay. Does the moon matter to deer movement? Yes or no? No. Would you take a 50 yard shot at a whitetail with your bow? No. If you could only have one of these tools for the rest of your hunts, for the rest of your life, would you select rattling antlers or grunt tube? Grunt tube. Expandable or fixed blade broadheads? I'll go to what I currently use, fixed blade. Okay. Should you stop a moving buck with some kind of sound before shooting with a bow? Yes. Which state has better hunters, Missouri or Georgia? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) I'm going to get you more hate mail. I'm going to say individual. (laughs) All right. Here's the last thing. Let's imagine for a second that I have uh, control of the world. I, I rule the world. I have a magic wand. And I am going to revoke your hunting privileges, Grant, for the next 20 years, unless you kill a mature buck in one single day this coming season. So you get one day. I need you to pick the date on the calendar. What day are you going to pick for this hunt? And then please give me details of the one specific location that you're going to pick for this very high stakes hunt. November 5th. Western Kansas, where it's wide open, and the travel corridors are probably obvious from Mars. Love it, love it. What kind of, what kind of, like, uh, paint for me, like the tree stand location, more, more detailed. Might be a ground blind. There's not a lot of trees in Western Kansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, I'm gonna want three things. I'm gonna want a couple of trails merging into maybe a fence gap. And typically my hunts out there will have a CRP field that I think deer are bedding in and a bean or alfalfa field where I think they're feeding. And I'm going to be in between in the smallest gap I can find on the satellite image. I'm not going to walk. Typically, this is a creek bottom. I'm not going to walk the whole thing. I'm going to find the narrowest gap so the buck is unlikely to pass out a range that's also favorable for the wind. And I love those western creek bottoms because they – they tend to not be straight, but wind a lot. So somewhere yeah. in that bottom, the wind's going to be perfect for the wind that day. Yep. Man, that sounds like a good spot. I, I, I have confidence in your choice. I think you'll get it done. <laughs> Grant, that is it. That is the, uh, the what would you do gauntlet. You, you pass with flying colors. Oh, you're kind. You're kind. Thank you for being <laughs> patient with my rambling. Oh, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, for folks that want to follow along with, with all the cool stuff you're doing, can you, can you fill us in on anything new to look forward to this fall or where we should go to see all your great content? Mark, how about I share some with you I haven't shared with the rest of the public. So sure. my wife, Trace, and I have been very blessed. And through the years, not all at once, through 20-plus years, we've accumulated a pretty big piece of land here in the Ozark Mountains, all timbered, rough, steep, rocky. This is not, you know, high-dollar Iowa land. And we have sowed the northern 1,500 acres to close here in about a couple of weeks, where I've spent the vast majority of 20 years working. Wow. 
and are moving our office. You've been here, Mark, and our yeah. house, all our trail cameras, all our hunting equipment to this southern 900 acres where there's nothing. Uh, just a couple little food plots, not all the TSI, not all the burning, because I, I love a new project. And, you know, I mentioned when I'm 61, I got another good project or two in me, I believe, Lord willing. And so I'm really excited about starting over and sharing the because te- the techniques I used 15 years ago, I may not use anymore. I've refined or I've learned a quicker way or a cheaper way or whatever. So I am so excited to start over. And, and I will tell you and you get this because you're a producer. You don't do something that significant just to get new content. Mm-hmm. You don't. This is my true heart to really refine. My northern property is not perfect, but you know we're we're in the Ozarks and we harvest doggone large bucks for the Ozarks, and we figured out how to hunt it, and we kind of know the situation. And I'm just really looking forward to a new challenge and and starting over. You know, there's all kind of low grade hardwoods that need to be improved, and cedars to be cut, and more fire. fire more prescribed fire and I'll probably get done and trails to make and little hideo food plots to make. So I'm super excited about that. Man, I, I totally get it. It's that it's the puzzle. It's the mystery. It's trying to figure it all out. That's, that's what does it. It's uh it's the shot, the trigger pull is just a tiny, tiny little bit of it. And uh, I'm excited for you. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm so looking forward to it. Awesome. So I'm sure we'll be able to see all that on growing deer this coming fall and next yeah, year as you, you know, keep working we, on it. Yeah, you know, Mark, as we, uh, you know, we make a new show every week, and so we don't have a production calendar like a lot of people do. That, that's great. I'm glad they do. We just film it every week, so we, we're filming whatever we're doing. So, yeah, we, I have ideas for about 10 high-deal food plots. We're going to restart them because we'll be planting in about a month, and that means we're, you know, killing some saplings or having a little prescribed fires to make a seed bed. We're just, just come along and see what we do. It sounds like a heck of an interesting thing to follow along with. Well, Grant, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I, I knew this was going to be great. It, it proved to be so. And I, I really appreciate you sharing this with us. Mark, I appreciate your friendship and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Let's get together soon. It'd be great to catch up more in person. Love to. All right. And that is a wrap. Thank you for listening. That was good. Wasn't it? That was fun. It's got me, uh, Got me ready. I mean, I am so ready. If any of you guys have listened this year on the podcast, you know that last season was a challenging one for me. Kind of burnt out by the end of the year. Took a little bit of time away this winter, and I am fully recharged. I am fully jacked to get back after it. And uh, and this one really helped continue that momentum. So be sure to go follow on with Grant's stuff. Like I mentioned already, Growing Deer is a terrific YouTube show. Uh, everything he puts out is just top notch. There's lots and lots to learn from Grant. So be sure to subscribe, follow along with his stories. And until next time, my friends, thank you and stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal 
you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.